This episode is part of the Business 101 series, featuring faculty and collaborators of Lundquist College of Business at the University of Oregon. Welcome to 101, the podcast with a quest to know and enjoy the 101 of everything. Today we have a guest conversation with Roger Best on the invisible line, academia and business working together. 101 guest conversations feature professionals who believe so much in the power of education, they have personally become involved in the education process as donors, collaborators, and board members. The guests come to share their knowledge and passion for education in conversation with an academic, which happens to be me, your host, Troy Campbell, an assistant professor here at the University of Oregon. Our guest today is Roger Best, an expert in marketing both as an academic and as a business person. He has won the American Marketing Association Teacher of the Year Award, been a research powerhouse, literally written the book on market-based management, and has an engineering degree and unending business experience. Best cares strongly about education and has donated to the University of Oregon PhD researcher and teaching funds over $1 million. On the podcast, we use his personal story from being a curious engineer at General Electric to becoming an academic and the many research integrations with business that happen along the way. The episode is subtitled Invisible Line to indicate the curious relationship of academia and business. That on one hand, the line is exaggerated, but on the other hand, due to things like language difficulties and misunderstandings between each other, it's sometimes really hard to cross that line. If we want to make research matter and business be better for profits, efficiencies, consumers, and the world, we need to understand how to cross this invisible line. And Roger's here to help this. Also on the pod, we talk about the difference between person and product focus. I talk about the art of communicating through definition and application. And on Drinks After Class, Alec and I talk about the difference between basic and applied research, getting at some clarifications, and also get into learning and the entire point of this podcast. So let's get into it as we dive into the 101 of the relationship between business and academia with professor and business person, Roger Best. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Thank you for um, coming and hanging out with us. Thank you. So we're going to talk about today this relationship between academia and business and how they can interact and how they fit together so well and how we can make them fit together even better in certain situations. But let's start off with just your sort of origin story. You have this moment when you were younger where you sort of discovered how they could interact so well. Yeah, I was an engineer at General Electric, and unlike, not unlike many uh, engineers, there were evening programs in the Bay Area, and uh, mine was at a, a state school. I only took two classes a, a term, but my teachers uh, in many cases were PhD students from Berkeley and Stanford, which actually brought to the classroom a little bit more than your average, you know, textbook case study approach. We were really challenged to think almost do what they were doing in their PhD level kinds of things. So they're bringing the PhD seminar research. Yeah, and we were reading books that, you know, no one was reading even probably in PhD programs at that time. It sounds kind of crazy, but... (laughs) And at the same time, I was coming from an applied world of business. So in this process, I had to make a change at some point because these people were really, really influential in my way of thinking. And I was either going to leave GE and go into a high-tech firm 
or go for a PhD, and I elected that route because I thought that the educational system offered a, a lo- another level of learning beyond the MBA, and that was my whole motivation. One side note is when I left GE, GE said, boy, you're making a big mistake, but we like you so much, we're going to fund your PhD. <laughs> Pretty good. So I was a, kept on as a consultant retainer the whole time I was at Oregon getting my PhD, which is kind of unique. And so let's talk about this PhD education as part of your origin story and sort of getting people to sort of understand sort of what getting a PhD is like and what you're learning in a PhD are the essential qualities of academia about how to ask questions and how to precisely solve things. So how are you learning that and sort of using it uh, in your work? I feel very passionately that that experience in writing and researching and working with these published professors gave me a new way of thinking, seeing, and then eventually allowing me to jumpstart my career in, in academia. And so, sometimes I like to use this sort of superhero metaphor of a PhD. It's a little self-aggrandizing, I guess, since I'm a PhD, but I like it is that you um, sort of go into the PhD process and you don't just sort of learn all these pieces of knowledge. You don't just learn, you don't just get this utility belt of knowing all these things. Like this is what anchoring is. This is what curvilinear relationship is. But you sort of really get that intense practice with all those things on your utility belt, all these ideas. And so you really understand how to think and use those things and adapt them to situations. So you're finishing now your PhD in our story. And so where are you going from there? And how is this sort of going to lead us into this continual interaction between you and the business world? And, and um, I elected to go to Arizona for a variety of reasons. And um, the chairman at department chairman at Arizona was uh, on two editorial boards, JM and JMR, and he really coached me. So now I'm at a whole other level of education. You wouldn't yeah. have gotten, I just lucked out all the way along. And so then something happened that really cemented your eternal relationship between academia and business. When I was at Oregon, after a few years, uh, returned to Oregon, I really wanted to get more involved in the business community. And uh, I had several attempts and uh, locally and then we got the opportunity with uh, Chuck Lewis going to GE. So he gave us this opportunity to look at these business problems at GE. How do you allocate a marketing budget that actually helps you be more profitable? What causes market share to change? And the issue of marketing productivity, we use the terms, but what is it? How do you measure it? It's a nice term, but there's nothing in the literature that sort of soundly allows business to say, that's it, I can measure it and manage it. And Chuck provided that opportunity and the data for Dell and I to, uh, Dell Hawkins and I to do this. They actually paid for us to have a link to the PIMS database in our offices in the old building, which is now the Lewis Complex. You know, taking everything we learned or knew as academics and applying it to the area of, let's say, marketing productivity, we presented that to GE and they, they liked it. They could see they could use it. And with their permission, we were able to publish it. And uh, we included Chuck as an author and was accepted at the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science. Wonderful. A year later, it's the article of the year, which is a great story of someone in business having a, an issue, a problem, a challenge, academics, providing a solution to the problem, and then being able to articulate it in a way that other managers can understand it. I think in this sort of situation, you sort of learned what is one of your favorite things to do now whenever talking to a business as an academic, which is you ask them a question, tell me your your 
three biggest problems? Is that what it is? I don't want to research something that's unimportant. That's yeah. a waste of time for both of us. So I'm not going to tell you what I do. I want you to tell me what, you, what you're trying to what's, – what's an issue that you don't have time to look at or it's, it's too abstract to look at, and let's see if we can formulate something around that. Like right now, just to deviate a bit, nobody knows how to measure the, the return on investment in social media. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everybody's spending it like crazy. But if you ask them, if I'm asked by one, it's thousands of people, how do you determine whether our spending is getting any effect, you know, with, except for the people that tell us we should do it? Yeah. yeah. I think the academic, what they bring to the equation is uh, an understanding of measurement and experimental design and methodology and take a problem and then put it into a, a situation where they can measure things. And that's not something business does very well. And it's it's in the in the wheelhouse of every academic. That's how we process yeah. things. It's how we, the scientific method. So before we get into the true meat of the podcast and talk about the difference between business and academia and how they can uh, overcome those differences, let's talk about this one other story from you, which is the birth of your market-based management. So slowly it evolved that I, I should try to write this up. And uh, so I began the journey in the early 90s of writing market-based management because the nature of the content was a little bit richer. It wasn't about definitions and terms. It was about how this works in a practical world. So I started each chapter out with, you know, a situation that everybody could identify with and then, then went to sort of the, the, the academic concepts, but in an applied way. And it's still going today, 21 years later. So let's talk about some of these specific things about market-based management and this approach that I think we can all learn from. So first of all, can we talk a little bit about the sort of essential component of it, of being customer versus other types of focus? Um, Maybe talk just the difference between customer and product focus? Right. That's a big challenge. It's sort of like, what do we make that we can sell versus what do people need that we can make? That's the difference between product selling versus consumer marketing. Yeah, and you have that excellent question that sort of I feel I feel is very academic, uh, where you're saying you know you don't go up to somebody at consumer and ask them what do you like. You ask them what do you want. What do you need that you don't have right now? Right. It's not what you like or what you have. It's what you can't get that you want. Yeah. Oh wow, that's a different question. You know, and they might. I remember working with uh, Kodak uh, in the copier division, and we asked that question, and they said they wanted their copier to work like the refrigerator. They want every time I open it, it works. I want to print on both sides. I want to make uh, three-by-five cards out of it by pushing a button. So the consumer insight is such a key part of it. In our new sports product management program, that's at the front end, at the first term, uh, is consumer insight. Because if you don't have that, then you're, you're making products that maybe people won't even buy. And so another great way that you make your education so useful for business, and, you know, the reasons you're getting thousands of people going to your website every month in business to use it, is the tools that you're providing along with the learning. So there's the videos on the website, there's the links from the chapters, but there's also these interactive numerical tools that you're using. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, again, this came from industry. I was developing in Excel tools in my, for my workshop, and it just evolved when I wrote the book that I should have these tools for each chapter, three or four, if it's a market share tree or it's a customer satisfaction measurement system or the relationship between customer retention and profitability. Someone should be able to go in there and with just 
a few pieces of information. As a matter of fact, you can use it, the data that's there and just play with it. Yeah. But the ability, you can also put your own data in and save it. And 3M, for example, they bought 1,000 copies of my book for all their 1,000 man- managers. And what they did was they decided to take over a period of time one chapter per month uh-huh. at lunch hour and discuss these concepts and a- apply them. And then they had an internal trade show for the company where they presented it to everybody else. This is what we got out of the book and on pricing or chapter one, chapter two. Someone says, I'm over here on chapter six, and this is what we did. And I think what's so great about the tools that you've built along with this is that it's, it's just sort of a, a thing to, hey, academics, this is what we can do better is don't just tell them the information. Provide them the information in a way that they can immediately play with in their space. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So the whole idea of market-based management was to take marketing into a more measurement domain, but make it almost intuitive. Yeah, and I think people think of these things, you know, as these massively complicated things, but you're like, okay, so you've got awareness, you've got price, you've got competition, you've got time, you've got uncertainty. And those things seem just so crazy when you have seven constructs in your head at the same time. But if you have this nice little Excel or this nice little web-based HTML product that you've provided all of a sudden, you feel like you just have this mastery over it. It wasn't a lot of hard teaching because I was able to just give them the concept and then the tool and then them by interacting with the data, yep. their data though, not mm-hmm. my data, they got it really quickly. Yep. And that was fun. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, the very first thing I do in almost all my classes is I have the people get into groups or I'll put like six companies or six bands and I say, pick something you love. And now you have something you love and you understand. And now I'm going to teach you the theory of identity marketing. Whatever, whatever concepts I'm going to be teaching, they're going to see it through the lens of something they're familiar with. And when you allow somebody to – you teach people new concepts in a situation they're already masters of, they just learn so incredibly fast. So another benefit you've talked about with me is that when you were in the business world and you were consulting – that you actually became a much better just in general teacher to your students at the academy. So you've given back to the university and your donations tend to be focused on graduate students and their experience. And what are you doing and, and why? Well, the doctoral students, first of all, are the, are the focus of this donation. And specifically, I started in 2003 with a teaching awards because I felt being a member of the faculty a department head, I knew that the GTFs were among our best teachers, many of them. Yeah. And they're really not even noticed or rewarded. So I wanted to put some money out there and build a little cultural recognition, even just with, within that group. And so... And, it, and also makes that step really important is in academia, teaching is important. It's not just the research. Right. Yeah. sort of validate their excellence in teaching by getting yeah. – and many of them wrote me a letter and said, I, I really appreciate the, the money, but the recognition is going to go a lot further in my yeah. job search. Yep. So that we did that for 10 years, and then I wanted to expand it into research, and which was going to be a lot more money because there are a lot more people involved. But I wanted to be performance-driven, and I wanted to reward people for – submitting papers, publishing papers, and in particular, uh, interacting and working with faculty, because that was the whole origin of my success was that working with the faculty at Oregon when I was a doctoral student that got me off to such a fast start. Yeah. And it was 
The other thing, I, I, I did some research and found out that if you publish while you're a doctoral student or in your first year or two afterwards, you're more likely to publish as part of your career. If you don't, it's pretty unlikely that you ever will. Uh-huh. It's not likely that you're all of a sudden, you're six or seven, you're going to crank out three articles. Uh-huh. If you didn't do that early on, you're, the odds are not with you. The other thing important about that is it wasn't institution dependent. They controlled for whether it was Stanford, like at the top, oh, wow. the top schools versus middle to versus bottom. And the middle schools, like in Oregon, if you had this early success, you had a higher probability of producing a stream of research for several years or maybe your career than someone at Stanford who didn't ever do that first couple of years. They end up with a, a, a zero at the end of the time. So you might think or hypothesize that it's the institution, but it really is, I think, experiential. And there's no reason why Oregon can't compete in that realm given some financial reward. And that's not – the amount of work these people do is, is – is, the, the money is trivial. It's probably a dollar an hour, if that, 50 <laughs> cents an hour. But, you know, when it's all said and done, uh, $1,000 is still $1,000, and you still had to do the work anyway. And that's why I did it. Yeah, and it, it's such a it's such a lovely award, and it benefits me as a professor. And so, as it works, as you know, student gets um, an acceptance um, or a revise and resubmit, and then they get a little money, and and that's just such a useful thing because it just it just takes off. Uh, we were having a discussion. We we're like, what should we do? And instead of thinking where the funds were going to come from, of all the different pockets of money and all these different things, we're like, no. We got best money. There it is. Let's do the best version of it. Well, accidental pun. No. Um, and uh, it works It works so well. No, that part of it was really building more collegiality between the professors and the, and the doctoral students and building a culture of interaction to mutual benefit everybody. Yeah. So it's the, the money is the easy part. The, the research is much more difficult. Yep. But if there's something to help reward uh, performance, then that's good. Alrighty, so we teased this discussion a lot. Let's dive into it. How can academics and businesses work together and understand each other more? And so to facilitate this, you often talk about thinking, well, what do academics tend to focus on and what do businesses tend to focus on? We need to understand those before we start building the proper bridges. Uh, so so what does that look like? Academics uh, have a, a, a certain way of thinking, talking, and, and the, a certain set of tools, and they're more theory-driven, which is great because that is our mission, is, is to create new knowledge and, and, and prove and validate and test new theories. And that has, it's, it's like a doctor, you know, there's a certain anatomy and, and language that goes with that. And business people are really more problem-solving focused. They, they really have a different motive uh, and a different mindset, different vocabulary, a different reward system, different timeline, different toolkit, and, and they don't often always align. So um, I'm just going to give you one example of how it could work. The University of Texas marketing department formed a board of several companies in Texas, and they meet, I don't know if it's twice a year or once a year, and the board comes and meets with the marketing department, and they tell them the kind of problems they're working on or they, they, they would like to have solved. So then the marketing department can say, well, which of those could we dig into? Is, is, are they applicable? And some aren't and some are. So I think the first step, it's hard for 
uh, it's just an idea, by the way. It's I was lucky in that Chuck Lowe's brought us into the GE, and then with that experience, I got a reputation, and other all, all people started calling me from all these companies, and the the, the ball started rolling. But that that's not always going to be the case. So what the college could think about in closing that gap would be to create some sort of small board of organ companies or maybe West Coast that would meet with the faculty for a half day once a year and say, these are the kind of marketing problems we're struggling with, we're wrestling with. And, and then we would take that back and say, are there any of those that we could really do a good job with? That would be uh, probably a what I would call best practice yeah. you know, idea. So at the broadest strokes, we have academics as the theory-focused, and we have businesses as the problem-focused. And so the answer for the academics to some degree is invest time to learn the problems that businesses have. Yeah, I mean, once the problem's defined, what, let's say marketing productivity or social media return on investment, social media marketing or uh, whatever it might be, once that's defined, then you really have to understand the problem much deeper. You know, the language of the problem, the the metrics that go around that problem, um, not from your language, but from their language. And you'll get a really deeper understanding of the problem. It's kind of like observational research. You've got to go in there and, and watch, listen, feel the culture. It, you can't just read about it. You've got to really sense it. You have to talk with people. And... Um, once you have that, the different light bulbs click on, different little neurons start lighting up, and you're at a different level of thinking. It's not just a little brief on here's the problem. It's, it's much more than that. Yeah. You need to spend a day in the life with a customer or a manager to see their world and see their problem and really be an anthropologist um, trying to absorb their culture and learn their problem from their point of view, then you'll be able to address your, then you can really do a better job of, of taking your toolkit and experimental design methodologies and, and, and building something that is mutually beneficial. On the other side of things, if, if academics are these theory-focused uh, people and they need to invest time to learn in the problems, what might businesses maybe do to better integrate or appreciate or benefit from the academic learning? Right. I think businesses that could articulate the problem and say, here, this is an issue. You know, we don't really have the time or resources or expertise to devote to it. But every day we use this, we think about this, like value pricing or brand equity or whatever it might be. You guys have the time, knowledge, and skill to research this topic by drawing all the literature. We don't even know what that literature is. Mm -hmm. um, taking the time to do that, maybe the problem's already been solved. We don't know it, you know, and maybe it can be approved upon. We don't know that. So you can help us. But the, the biggest problem is what biggest issue is what's the problem. <laughs> and, and, and if we solve the problem, what's the benefit? So in, in some modern companies that are becoming more research focused, right? So, you know, I was in Disney Imagineering research and I was a social psychologist there. Um, some of my friends have gone to Google. And so we're getting potentially more PhDs, especially with certain types of skills like, like social psychology in these places. Do you see that as sort of a benefit as a, as a way to have a tether to academia, underdeveloped opportunities there? 
Absolutely. That, that's the whole Chuck Lillis story. Here's a guy yeah. that was trained in academia, spent eight or ten years in you know, publishing and getting tenure and goes off to GE and other companies and saw the value of what we did over in our side of the equation and saw that some of these problems couldn't be solved with the staff he had uh, or they didn't have the time. And so having people who are that are knowledgeable uh, at that level in companies is a huge asset because they, they can help define the problem more, more, more accurately and see the, the benefit of how um, academia could bring a, a new insight to that, to that problem or situation. There's, there's so many examples that I could go on and on with, but having that um, connectivity with leadership, uh, with someone who is already pretty well educated along those lines, really makes a big difference. So let's take this moment to talk about how to communicate knowledge. Lots of us know lots of things from school, reading, or podcasts. We know ideas and terms and concepts, but how do we communicate those to others? One fantastic way is define and apply. So let's see how that would work in an example. Say you're consulting a bicycle company. You could say to them, you should use the IKEA effect to make people like your product more. That would technically be correct, but they probably wouldn't understand what to do based upon what you said. Instead, what you should do is engage in define apply. So let's see how that would work. You would first define. You would say, you should use the IKEA effect, the finding that people enjoy things more when they themselves make it. For instance, successfully assembling an IKEA chair makes people like an IKEA chair more than if it was just given to them already assembled. This is potentially one of the reasons for IKEA fanaticism. Next, you'd move on to application. And you'd say, so you could apply the IKEA effect with your bicycles by delivering them half-made with a few steps to complete it that would fit with the skill level of your general audience. So what's happened here? First, you've defined. You've used the term allowing people to focus. Terms are wonderful things, but terms must be understood. You must define them if your audience has any ambiguity about that term. And if possible, you can also, in the definition, give an example from research or another company that adds credibility. Second, you've applied, and you've applied it specifically to the company. You've shown, it, you've shown how it matters to them. And all of a sudden, they get thinking. They get thinking more than probably what you've said to them. They think, oh, we could change our bikes to be more um, able to be assembled by our customers. Or maybe we could have an assembly station at our stores. So let's take one more example. And let's say you're consulting on a theme park ride and you're developing it for, I don't know, one of those mediocre parks with the flag in the name or something like that. And, and you start by defining. Um, and you say, you should use a portal for the entrance of your new Looney Tune land. And you say to them, a portal is a transitional space that makes people feel they are leaving one world and entering a distinct world. It's one of the reasons that Disney parks are so magical. Disney uses portals all over the park by having tunneled spaces where you can't see for a moment where you came from and where you are going. 
SoulCycle also does this. They use this by having longer than necessary hallways between the waiting room and the magical cycling room. So at your park, you could apply this by having the entrance and exit to the Looney Tunes land could be a circle tunnel in the shape of what Porky Pig always said, that's all folks in, which would be both on brand and psychologically sound. So that's define apply. It's a simple process, but it's often overlooked. And notably, one of the biggest complaints about modern students and generally smart people overall is that they know a lot, but they don't know how to communicate or apply what they know. Define and apply greatly fixes this, making you look more professional and competent and bridging the gap between academic knowledge and business action. And so the other idea which you know, you've actually contributed to is educating currently employed people further than just a 10-minute TED video. Right. I, I, I'll go back to the marketing excellence survey. That was the whole point, was to, to bring to the person on a confidential basis their shortcomings in marketing knowledge. Mm-hmm. So uh, if the report came back that you scored way below a benchmark average in, let's say, pricing or market segmentation, then the company, uh, what the company would then do is say, if we had a lot of people that have that need, we're going to build a seminar around that. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems so basic in hindsight, but if you're going to be a business and you want to educate your employees, figure out what you need to educate them on. Right. Exactly. Which Um, is a step often skipped over or there's not a resource because there wasn't your right. market, marketing excellence so survey we, before we, that. With the survey, a lot of companies were very more, much more specific in their education and what they brought in. And uh, it was, and also they were able to then, they actually came back to the marketing excellence survey maybe a year later and measured, remeasured to see if there was an improvement in the group, which is another part of that, that whole benefit. All right. So let's get to it. That big question, the language divide. One of my best MBA students saw a JMR paper I had written and was very excited because he was working at a large company, got a, a really high-level job. And he was very proud to say, look, at, here's my professor wrote this article. And he wrote me, I was so disappointed because it, it wasn't you. That, that wasn't you speaking. It's not what I remember, not what you taught me. You were like an alien. <laughs> and... and how could you be so different from what I learned? <laughs> yeah. Terminology, the, the, the language of reciting aches, it, pepper, so-and-so, blah, 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 <laughs> on, 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 talking in terms. And uh, it, it was an, a typical academic article, and it's not a criticism. It's just the way we write. We have to yeah. write. It's if you're a scientist in physics, biology, um, chemistry, uh, anthropology, they all have the same language. You know, it's, it's, it's part of academia. Yeah. But it doesn't translate to the business world. There's nothing, yeah, I hate so, to uh, say this, but it's part of my rant, as you yeah. said. <laughs> um, there's nothing in most journals that a business person could read and, and decipher and get out of. It's a, from them, it's a waste of time. They can't see the connectivity. And part of that's because of the language. Um, so I always feel that if you can explain to a 10th grader and they understand what you're talking about, um, you're probably going to understand better yourself. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not there, which also leans to sort of the question of that academics should sort of get more training or experience in translation and or universities should sort of 
invest themselves in more translation professionals in the media department or well, whatever. Well, every time you teach, you actually have the chance to improve your yeah. translation skills and make it your concepts um, more consumable because they really are your laboratory. And if because students can kind of say, ah, I see the connection and how it works in business, then you're going to be, I think, further along. And I think that's one of the benefits of being a teacher is you get to articulate this. And if it didn't go so well, you get the chance to do it again Yeah, at a pretty low cost of error. I saw it happen so often. GE would bring in a guy from Columbia, and he's, he's in his theory mode. Yeah. And they're going, what's he talking about? Yeah. It's a waste of time. Yep. He, he could not bring himself into their world and talk from their point of view. Yeah. And not that he wasn't capable or smart. It's just he, only had, he could only see the world one way. Didn't yep. go well. It's sort of this idea is if the theory academics and the problem business-minded people are to work together, we need to take time to explain ourselves and to understand the other. There needs to be a dialogue between the academics and the people in industry. Um, the whole area of consumer insight, there's a lot of things going on that we could improve the methodology and improve the, the, the way you get information and, and, and translate into products and testing it. And no one's connecting, um, really. The faculty are under a lot of pressure to publish. They don't have a lot of time to go running around listening to people tell their stories in industry. And people in industry are under a lot of time pressure to produce. And they don't have a lot of time to go down and listen to academics spout their theory. So there's a time constraint, which is very real. And then there's this investment which is in time and language and yeah and it it brings me back to this idea is that sometimes what i wish we could do is just hire these in-betweens that certain companies could have hey i have an academic here whose job who not just is one of the academics who understands business but their job for this year or always is to sort of be the go-between and the facilitator in some way. And if I'm a business, which I think some businesses are getting to do, is that you hire a really research-minded person who's able to sort of be that go-between between the CEOs and CTOs and um, the academics. The average company doesn't have that resource, and and, and even a lot of the larger ones uh, aren't, aren't, aren't geared that way. But large established companies like Ford, DuPont, GE, they have over time, although the AT&T and a lot of the old Bell Labs people, they could see the value of, of, of that academic connection and connected with people. But the average company, especially an evolving industry like sports products, it's just, it's generate, it's years away before they'll get to that, you know, level of, uh, you know, operating as a company to invest in that. Um, is that you talked about how sort of sometimes businesses often want gurus or anecdotes or silver bullets or business entertainment or cool speakers rather than sort of focusing on rather than sort of the the academic that pushes things or requires a longer time. People like to be entertained. Sometimes a speaker who has good stories and can deliver them in a very, very entertaining way will be very, very enjoyed by business. And uh, if you ask them, then, what did you learn? They may not be able to articulate anything but tell, repeat the story. Yeah. 
Um, but they loved it. They, they had a wonderful experience. They, they felt good. <laughs> the best academic is someone who can articulate a story with a concept. Yeah. So uh, Michael Porter wrote a book called Competitive Strategy in the 80s or 90s. There's nothing in that book that was new. There's nothing in that book that was, but he was able to communicate in a way that every manager in America had a copy of that book and talked yeah. about it all the time. Uh, Porter's Five Forces. He was able to develop a language. Yeah. And when I went out in America and, and even today, you can ask any manager in any company about Porter and they're going to just spout off. It's amazing what he was able to do. And yet everything was in there was, had been published from 1940 on. Yep. He just was able to write it in a way that was very consumable. And um, that was his genius. And he, he, he was a great professor, or still is probably, and, and wrote this book. But that's, a, I think, probably the best example of someone who took really, really deep economic analytical terminology and was able to communicate it in a way. And then he gave speeches after speech after mm -hmm. speech, you know, lots of money, and he could give up. But he had stories to go with each concept. Yep on whether it's competitor exit, competitor entry, or buying power. He, he branded over the, one of these little nuggets in a way it was consumable. If you went back to the academic literature, none of it was consumable. Yeah. So he was probably the best example of someone who could entertain and educate at the same time. Yeah. And I think academics sometimes have this feeling uh, uh, that they'll be like, I don't want to say this. I don't want to say it like that. That looks like BuzzFeed.com. And my response often is, well, BuzzFeed.com optimally fits how humans process information and often can learn because of how structured mm -hmm. um, that is. And yeah, it doesn't look like academia, but all our academic knowledge suggests that that's actually the way that people can learn. Not to say every BuzzFeed article is a perfect learning experience. And then on the other side of that, on the, the entertainment side, and the, you feel like you've learned. You know, one of the reasons we do this podcast and we work on things in media and the university is we're trying to make things be as entertaining as we can, but still fit good learning principles, where there's a mm -hmm. core concept, there's an intro, there's a summary at the end. And a lot of these things that people are in love with, some of these podcasts that are hugely phenomenally successful, hugely, huge, often funded by actually education grants, often really fail to follow good education principles and sort of the divide between what we feel like we're learning, that metacognitive feeling we feel like we're learning, mm -hmm. rather than the actual capturing of knowledge into our head. And so, yeah, so be, tell stories, be specific, and uh, that's the way that you're going to get your education in there. Tons of research suggesting that the mind actually processes things narratively. And so that's the structure by which we retain and remember information. It's very difficult to retain facts. And it's not that you should get rid of facts in, in communication. And there's this whole thing, like common things talked about right now. Facts don't matter. People will never listen to facts. Um, all, they only hear what they want to hear is, no, there's a way to communicate in ways that you can tell the facts in the right way that you can usually win the day for that situation. Um, I just thought of one other thing about this communication. In my book, Market-Based Management, I, I use more um, graphics than most books. Yeah. I, I think that you can communicate a lot more information graphically than you can words just by seeing it. I spent a lot of time on how to present this in a, in a picture that mm -hmm. is meaningful. 
maybe with just a little side note on the side. When I look at the academic articles, I mean, there's all there's books reading written about how to make um, data meaningful through graphical and graphical presentation. And I think one of the things that we fail to do in, in in academia is is take data and translate it into a visual format, mm-hmm. and that would actually make the articles more interesting. Yeah. And of course, when you're presenting it to industry, instead of here's a table with uh, means and standard deviations, F statistics. I actually did this for one of the papers I'm interested in. You guys write have written, is I took the the, the average and divided by the variant or the, the highs and lows and create a graphic, and, and the graphic shows you much more yeah. of what's going on emotionally than a number. Yeah, and so I think visual presentation is another um, area that I don't think an area that could be improved upon that would help communicate information to business. Yeah, they're much more visual. Uh, much more bullet point formatted and uh, less text oriented. Yeah. There, there was a journal recently that I submitted to that allowed us to have a visual abstract, and I had my cartoonist friend actually draw something for it. Uh, but that is a rarity. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a rarity, right? <laughs> so in this podcast, we like to end by saying, how can this topic or how can this approach make the world a better place? So how is it that these theory academics working together with these problem business folks, uh, that interaction can make the world uh, a better place? Just solving real-world problems, the solutions aren't always going to be in business. They don't have the time, maybe the resources or the expertise to address certain problems. And academia doing research but not on important things might get a publication because you've got a certain sample and proves your theory mm-hmm. but it never solved a bigger problem that is more for the betterment of society whether it's nutrition or it's um uh exercise or some other or just efficiencies and making the workplace better is right. a, a definite benefit to the world right and i remember um reading um uh, something by Thomas Edison uh, in his biography about inventing something that never fulfilled a need. He said, I'll never make that mistake again. Yeah. Why did I spend all this time? It was an invention. It was patented, but it had no purpose. Yeah. So he became really a, a consumer-driven inventor. What do people need that they don't have? And I will work on that problem versus just another idea I had one day. So I think to the degree that business can divine problems um, and, and, and bring academia into the equation and how to solve them uh, could lead to, I mean, I don't want to get too far afield, but the whole social problem of bullying is a little bit of a marketing communications problem. You know, how do we get this far afield? To, social media is making it worse. Yeah. I know this is a deeper subject and a much broader, but marketing is right in the middle of all this, yep. you know, in, in many ways. How do we enhance social media communications to build a more respectful lifestyle for people? Um, that's a big question. And, um, in, you know, in nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, you know, there's, I think there's plenty of problems to go around. Um, in industry also, and I don't want to be pick on them, sometimes what I experience is they've been doing it a certain way and they don't want to change. 
and academia can sometimes disrupt their thinking and take them in a new direction, which is actually better, but it requires that dialogue uh, as to why. And again, a lot of the companies I worked with uh, have been very product-driven, very proud of it, and showing the benefits of being consumer-driven or market-driven was intuitively an argument they could they bought. But then, now do we do? You know, how do we go about this? And that was a real challenge. What are the the tools we need, what's the education we need, what are the reward systems we need to bring about this change. But I think there's plenty of problems that are societal, plenty of problems that are business-related, that have marketing, quote-unquote, academic um, solutions uh, to them. Um, we just aren't able to connect those dots as easily as we should be. Professor Roger Bass took us through the 101 of how academics and business can work together. We talked about how the ideas that academics can be thought of as focusing on pretty much theory and businesses can be thought of focusing on problems that they need to solve on a day-to-day -day basis. And academics have a specific set of skills uh, which are more data-driven than verbally driven. Academics are going to bring a, a different way of of looking at a problem from a measurement standpoint and a methodology and, and maybe even an experimental design that's data-driven and often businesses don't have the time and it, it becomes more of an anecdotal research which is more difficult to validate over time and put believability into. And we talked about how the idea that businesses can help focus academics by helping them basically define the problem Academics often are removed from that world of, of problem, everyday problem solving and are, are, are sort of left to their literature to guide them to the next question when in fact there are some perhaps bigger questions that are more meaningful to business society that if academics had access to them, they would be addressing. And in order to facilitate this process, um, Roger, you talked about breaking down the barrier of Communication, it's, it's, it's understanding each other's world. This has been the 101 of Academics and Business Working Together with Roger Best. Thank you very much for coming in, Roger. Thank you very much. It was a great opportunity. Awesome. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So welcome to drinks after class, which uh, in this case has actually turned into dinner after class because there's been some free food outside. So this is a part of the podcast where we reflect on uh, the main core part of the podcast. And oftentimes, and what we're going to really focus on here, are clarifications around certain things. Uh, so what was the first clarification we wanted to talk about, Alec? So Troy, one of the things that you and Roger had touched on a lot in this episode was applied research. But you had said that... You want to talk a little bit more on basic research and especially the difference between basic and applied and then also kind of if there are any tensions that exist between those. Yeah. So basic research and applied research are two different ways to do research. And basic research at its most fundamental can be thought of as exploratory research. 
So those are things like asking the question, how does this molecule collide with this other molecule? When you feel this emotion, how does that affect your memory? What does this specific animal do at night? And these are exploratory questions where people are asking them because they know that understanding the knowledge of finding out the answer to that question is important, but they're not exactly doing it for specifically one outcome. Versus an applied research question might be something like, we need to figure out what color on the wall we need to paint this room so this room stimulates more creativity or makes people in it feel more calm. And so those are sort of the, the ends of um, the extremes on those. And uh, what was the other thing you said? Tension, right? Yeah, tension between the two. Yeah, so is there tension between the two? And I'd say the answer is yes, but I think the tension comes from sort of a misunderstanding often, which is that both of them people who do these types of research feels the other one doesn't value them so much mm -hmm. sometimes. So the basic research people think the applied research people think you're being so esoteric and they might think somebody like Roger doesn't value them at all or think they're doing anything useful. Mm -hmm. And they might sort of misinterpret something he's saying, like if a business read your research, they get nothing out of it mm -hmm. as him saying that your research is important. But of course, Roger would never say that. And in fact, Roger spends lots of time reading basic research and being inspired by that basic research to do his things that are more on the applied end of things. And, um, and then vice versa, the applied people sometimes often feel very judged by the basic researchers because the basic researchers have this idea as we're true scientists, we're breaking through and finding, quote unquote, theoretical novelty, <laughs> this huge, huge uh, sort of phrase that gets thrown around. And you applied researchers are just applying it at best, your conceptual clarity. Um, <laughs> And uh, and that, there's a little bit of that exists, but I think it's over it's over um, overblown. And so hopefully that gets uh, around the understanding. And also to point out to anybody who is listening to this, probably not still listening to the podcast by now, you're like, oh, Roger, he hates applied research. Of course he doesn't. So um, uh, the next thing we sort of wanted to talk about was that Roger was talking about that businesses don't have time often. And this sort of suggested that businesses should just like hire in a consultant to come in and be like the sniper mm -hmm. rather than this sort of idea of generally learning. And so let's talk about these three sort of ways that people should learn that aren't sort of what we talk, got talked about on this podcast. And the first is learning related talents. And so uh, a great example of this is when an athlete takes ballet or some sort of dance to learn the related talent of balance, which is core to both of those things. Okay. And yeah. what Have you ever learned, done anything with a related talent? <laughs> I mean, I have never been a football player that's taken dance. I have taken dance before. I don't yeah. know if that counts. I guess to me, in a lot of ways, journalism is itself a related talent. Because, I mean, I'm originally an English major. I wasn't planning on going into journalism. I was planning on probably just taking like a PhD track and becoming an academic, especially in English or philosophy, which is my minor. And as I kind of got an opportunity to write for a school paper at my previous university, I really discovered this idea of taking a lot of the things you learn in English and just applying it to a different field that itself is is different in a, a ton of ways but in some ways is the same because you know I've, I've heard this said before that storytelling is storytelling and especially you know whether that's in you know a Dostoevsky work or in something in the New York Times 
you know, there's a lot of related fields as to how you tell a story, even from fiction to nonfiction. And so journalism for me has almost, which, you know, I've, I've now focused more primarily on, and that's the, the career I want to go into, has been something that was related, that was kind of an outlet for writing in English that ended up becoming kind of a primary yeah. mode. And that sort of gets us a little bit into the second type of learning we wanted to talk about, which was unrelated talents, which is like somebody comes here, like one of uh, the former professors here, Azim um, Sharif, and he immediately came here and he took a wood shop class. Mm -hmm. And he takes this class and then all of a sudden he learns through wood shop so many things that he can take to other places. He learns about design. He learns how to learn better mm -hmm. and sort of learns how to teach better because of that. And so this unrelated thing makes him better in everything else that he's doing. And then me, of course, always providing the student example, which <laughs> speaking for 25,000 people on campus, I guess, is is something I'm not trying to do. But okay. <laughs> he's the, the entire voice. I'm the voice of all professors. All professors on campus agree with me. Yeah, exactly. Um. Exactly. Everyone is an English major at the university. Um no, but especially there's a lot of subjects you go through school, especially looking at gen ed requirements that you think are completely unrelated that, you know, I have to like wade my way through these and I'm never going to really ever use these topics. You know, for me in English, a lot of times that's science. That's, you know, a lot of advanced math, a lot of advanced yeah. biology, chemistry. And a lot of times there are things we can take away from that that are either, you know, just tangentially interesting to us that we maybe are just, well, I didn't think I'd be interested in this, but I'm actually very interested in uh -huh. this or something that, you know, has kind of this carryover theme, like especially theme like design, and learning design and logic. And, yeah. Into, yeah. and it, it's such a I think that lots of times people fail to sell people on education is they're like people don't do things because they think the thing is unrelated mm -hmm. um, to it. And they're like, well, I'll never use the things that I learn in those class, like those actual facts. But you'll learn those processes and you'll learn so much from learning something differently. And the fact that something is unrelated, people often like, no, no, it really is related and it really is connected. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes that's not the reason you should do something. You should do something because it is not related exactly. and you're going to gain things uh, from that. If you have the time and the resources to do it, do it. Yeah, exactly. So the last thing it relates to is our third thing, which we're going to call free learning. And so free learning, there's a lot of different terms for it, but I like this term is just learning about anything anywhere. So you're listening to maybe a podcast and learning <laughs> something. Uh, you're watching a television show. You're going to a lecture. Um, you're at a sporting event and you turn to the sporting nerd next to me and, be, and you say, oh, so how do the rules work or how does this, what is the history of the sport? It's all this free learning, which you never know how that's going to be helpful or you often know very little, but it ends up being helpful for processes and facts and other things like that. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned podcast, of course, uh -huh. and just hearing this kind of, and just hearing you, you talk about this third item, it really gets into the idea behind this entire series itself, this entire Why podcast series. Oh, we yeah. found a way to talk about ourselves here. This is nice. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's get meta with it. And so the idea of, you know, 101 is that learning a little about anything can help you with that thing, but it can help you with everything. And it can be so interesting and awakening just to learn all these seemingly random things. And 
to some degree, you're the point of the podcast, and I've been seeing this so well, is that I'm very familiar with the topics that we've gone through so far. I don't think the ones we're going to do later I will be as familiar with, but I've been seeing you learn, and you know, there's a section that I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You're like, that's really interesting and useful because I, it's your free learning. But I mean, that's the idea of the 101 podcast is, you know, it's the 101 of anything can help you know about that anything, but also can then help you with that everything. And it's just, it's so lovely to see happening with students like yourself or students in my class or other students, just the way that this knowledge becomes their own and they can apply it into all these different situations. And it's always fun people shouting out terms back to me in class and identifying through things and stuff like that. And yeah, so been free learning with Alec here. And yeah, I mean, in this process of putting this together, as someone who doesn't have really any academic experience in the business world, I've learned a lot. I've come to, I've come across a lot of concepts and ideas that I actually use every day or can use. And you know, if I had thought, well, this is a business podcast, this isn't for me, yep. I probably wouldn't have done that. And I think that's especially the importance of the 101 is that it's kind of the introduction and even if you don't even if it's unrelated if it's woodshop or something it's worth knowing the basics to know at the very least if you like it because i think we shut ourselves off from so many things because we feel we wouldn't like it and we never really give it a chance but in reality we have a lot more connections with things if we'd only open ourselves up to it yeah yeah and i feel like what you just said was one of the most cliche things that has ever yeah, been said. Exactly. But like the thing is we have to like repeat that cliche over and over and over again because we just forget the thing that, yeah, it actually is interesting to go listen to podcasts that are really different or information. And one of my favorite things to do is just to like ask somebody, you know, what's what's your favorite podcast that no one you know really listens to? Mm. And so then you can go listen to that weird podcast from uh, an athlete that, I, that none of their friends listen to. Or here's a podcast about having a ranch. And it's, it's like that sort of like yeah. woodshop element that you, you learn things and you see these different elements and how everything puts, puts it together. And after you do that, you, um, you feel smarter, you might say. <laughs> um, Again, audience, we're sorry that we don't have an official end to the podcast. So, you know, tweet at me and tell me what we should actually say to end this podcast with the oomph feeling. Um, but for now, uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast and hope you enjoyed understanding a little bit more about how business and academia can interact. Now we're smarter. To contact 101, hit up our host Troy Campbell directly on Twitter at Troy H. Campbell or email him at troycamp at uoregon.edu. At the time of recording, we have not finalized our social media names, so this is our temporary point of contact. We look forward to your thoughts, corrections, ideas for future episodes, or whatever else you'd like to chat with us about. The 101 podcast is produced by faculty and students at the University of Oregon's Lundquist College of Business and by the University of Oregon at large. The views and opinions expressed are those of the production team and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of Oregon. The music of 101 is Open Flames by Blue Dot Sessions and Deviate by Poddington Bear. This has been an episode of 101 from the University of Oregon. Now we're smarter.